I'm Bonnie Glazer, Managing Director of the Indo-Pacific Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. On January 13th, voters in Taiwan elected the DPP's Lai Qingde, the next president of Taiwan. Lai won 40% of the votes, a plurality, but not a majority. In his acceptance speech, Lai pledged to safeguard Taiwan from continuing threats and intimidation from China. He also said that he has an important responsibility to maintain peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. And he reiterated a statement that the current president, Tsai Ing-wen, made eight years ago when she was inaugurated. He said he would act in accordance with the Republic of China constitutional order. Beijing expected that Lai would win and was therefore well prepared. And the statement that was issued by the Taiwan Affairs Office shortly after the final tally was announced emphasized that the election result would not change the trend of cross-strait relations. And it said that reunification remains inevitable and yet warned against Taiwan independence and foreign interference. In today's China Global episode, we're going to discuss China's perspectives on the election and Beijing's likely responses going forward. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Rick Waters, who is Managing Director of Eurasia Group's China practice. He has served 27 years as a career diplomat, most recently as the inaugural head of the State Department's Office of China Coordination and Deputy Secretary of State for China and Taiwan. Welcome to the China Global Podcast, Rick. Bonnie, it's great to be here. So you heard me read a little bit of the Taiwan Affairs Office statement. I was, frankly, a bit surprised. It was a little bit more restrained than I expected. It was interesting that a couple of days later, uh, there were some harsher comments from Foreign Minister Wang Yi, who said uh, Taiwan has never been and never will be a country. And he warned that anyone seeking to pursue Taiwan independence is splitting China's territory and will be punished by history and law. So I want to get your take. How do you interpret Beijing's statements so far? Well, Bonnie, I think you you hit the nail on the head that the initial response to um, Lai's victory was a bit more muted than, than uh, many had, had led us to expect. And I think the reason for that is that there was a flurry of diplomacy going on in the run-up to the election, including you know, some statements from the U.S. side that were um, seen, I think, in a reassuring manner in Beijing. But I think most importantly, it was Lai's victory speech itself and the reaffirmation of the Republic of China constitution as the constitutional order um, as the basis for his governing platform. I think some of these signals from Taipei and from the U.S. probably toned down the TAO statement. But I think if you look at some of the other statements they've made, Different parts of their system are reacting uh, in in different ways. Wang Yi, um, more, I think, in response to international statements, uh, congratulating Lai. And uh, you even have the state security ministry uh, offering their views. So we should go into that over the course of the podcast. No, why don't you go ahead and comment on that? Uh, is it unusual? I think this is the first time, if I'm not mistaken, um, that the Ministry of State Security has commented on an election in Taiwan, right? As far as I'm aware, and I think the, you know, the MSS opened up a uh, WeChat account several months back. Um, now they've, they've posted an article in, on one of the news aggregators 
where they're essentially sending a, a message to Taiwan's intelligence and, and government departments, warning them to basically distance themselves from the DPP. It's a very unusual message, but I, I, I would have to imagine that um, the state security ministry and the security apparatus feel very emboldened um, in this environment. And sometimes we may get more accurate reflections of the internal debate from the parts of the Chinese system that are not typically involved in messaging on those issues. Interesting. Um, you know, the one action we have seen Beijing take so far is the stealing of Taiwan's diplomatic ally, Nauru. And as I recall, in 2016, uh, the Chinese picked up uh, the Gambia, which had broken ties with Taiwan and was uh, one of the few countries in the world that had diplomatic ties with neither Beijing or Taipei until after the election and uh, before the inauguration of Tsai Ing-wen. And then uh, I think it was March of 2016, the Chinese then established diplomatic ties with the Gambia. So it looks like the old playbook, um, how do you interpret that? And what else do you expect we're going to see from China? Well, I think we probably need to divide the the coming period into two phases. Between the election and the May 20th inauguration, uh, I think the Chinese will watch what uh, President-elect Lai does and says, and that will be the metric for how they respond. But I think more fundamentally, they're they're <clears throat> waiting to see what he says in his inaugural statement um, regarding Taiwan's legal status. That that at the end of the day is what Beijing is most concerned about. I think there is a recognition in Beijing that the ninety two consensus formulation is basically um, dead. There's just no market for it in Taiwan. But that doesn't. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're going to hold out for anything short of it. They're, they'll allow flexibility of language, but not of meaning. And that's why I think we have to divide this into two phases, because beyond May 20th, once the inauguration address sets the, the Lai administration's cross-strait policy, that I think is the point where if Beijing uh, doesn't feel they've gotten a formulation that is a sufficient basis for dialogue, the coercive menu of options will accelerate. And I think in some instances may go beyond what we've seen before. Well, we've heard some threats. Uh, there was particularly an article in uh, China Daily, somebody from the Xiamen University Taiwan Research Institute regarding the likelihood that China will impose or reimpose tariffs on some of Taiwan's products that are exported uh, to mainland China. Uh, they had reimposed tariffs on, I think, 12 products uh, about a month before the election. So is this an action you think they'll take before the inauguration, or you think they will hold back on taking more economic measures? You know, it's a, it's a good question, Bonnie. I think going into the um election, the, the economic cooperation framework agreement, preferential tariffs, were the punishment that Beijing had most clearly signaled. They announced the investigation into some uh, uh, trade-related issues just after Lai was inaugurated, uh, rather uh, became the candidate for the DPP. And of course, you mentioned the 12 products that were um, already removed from the preferential list. 
The Ministry of <clears throat> Commerce in China has already signaled that other ag, fishing, and industrial products could be next. So I wouldn't rule out that that could happen earlier in the spring, but I do see some indications of a debate among Chinese scholars that they recognize this tactic is not all, it's not actually that helpful. Um, there is a counterproductive aspect to it. I just fear that, you know, Beijing may feel they need to do something both for domestic political reasons as well as for their cross-strait strategy. And that sometimes can lead to punitive steps that are frankly counterproductive. What impact, if any, do you think the Woodside Biden Xi Jinping summit has had on Beijing's response to Taiwan's election? And what impact do you think it will have going forward? Well, I think it had a stabilizing role. Um, you know, if you look back to the period around former Speaker Pelosi's transit, uh, rather visit to Taiwan in 2022, you know, at that point, the U.S. and China were really just talking at each other. Um, and it's not as if they are going to find agreement on this issue. I mean, the goal, I think, that Biden has has set is is really one of just managing the differences on Taiwan responsibly. But I think from Beijing's perspective, they do seem to grudgingly acknowledge that at a tactical level, Biden and his administration are trying to manage the issue a bit more carefully than before. And, and I think that where that really plays out is in this strategic channel that Jake Sullivan maintains with Wang Yi. Um, you know, again, it doesn't mean that the U.S. is changing its positions necessarily. It really focuses more on talking about what the U.S. is and is not doing, because I'll tell you, there are, there are a whole host of examples um, in which the Chinese have made up their own version of what Biden intended to do over the course of the past couple of years. And that's affected in some ways the amplitude of, of the Chinese policy response. What role do the Chinese want the United States to play at this juncture? Well, that's the tricky part is I think, you know, what, what Biden is willing to do is to give, you know, assurances as he did publicly just before the election uh, in Taiwan that the U.S. doesn't support independence. That's not new. One of his uh, national security team members said on background just before the election that the U.S. would support cross-strait dialogue so long as it was free from coercion. And again, that's not a new U.S. position, but I don't think the Biden administration had said it before. The, this, this strategic channel, I think what the Chinese want is to test it, to see how much the U.S. will put pressure on Taiwan to move in the direction of a cross-strait formulation in the May inaugural that Beijing likes. And I, I just think that that's going to be unrealistic. I don't think that's really what the Americans are, are up to here. I think what they're up to here is just trying to inject a degree of predictability and to make sure that Beijing understands directly from them what their actions are and what their actions are not. How do you think the Chinese assess the efficacy of their policy toward Taiwan over the past eight years during Tsai Ing-wen's presidency? Um, you mentioned earlier that if they were to impose more economic pressure that at least some people in China realize that's counterproductive. I wonder, looking back at the last eight years, whether they think their policies have achieved any useful goals or whether they think that maybe some of their policies have not been very helpful and even counterproductive. Yeah, Bonnie, that's one of the hardest questions to assess because you know, you and I have many contacts in common on the Chinese side. I think there is some debate 
And I think there is some acknowledgement that the pressure tactics are generally counterproductive. But whether that extends to the Chinese leadership, I think, is is a question that's very hard to answer. I think once, you know, a leader sets a position in China on the Taiwan issue, given how sensitive it is, it becomes very different, uh, difficult to back away altogether. Um, and at a certain level, I think the challenge with what Beijing is doing is that the positive story here is they have not given up hope on peaceful reunification in quotes, which is the Chinese goal. I think there is some acknowledgement that the last eight years were, you know, Taiwan from Beijing's perspective moved in the wrong direction. But whether or not there's truly introspection about the nature of these tactics, frankly, I doubt it. I think what, what we're more likely to see in the signals I've gotten on my recent travels there are that China's likely to turn up the pressure yet again under this flawed theory that it is the Taiwan leadership guiding the population in a direction towards independence. And I don't think that at the top there's sufficient appreciation, perhaps, of how much the evolution of China, Taiwan identity, that very organic trend that was accelerated immensely during events in Hong Kong in 2019 and 2020, is really at the core of what is happening on the island. I, I think sometimes the Chinese just mirror image their system onto, onto the other, and that leads to a misdiagnosis and a miscalculation of the effectiveness of these tactics. Immediately following the election, the Biden administration sent the AIT chair, Laura Rosenberger, and two former senior officials uh, to Taipei, Steve Hadley and Jim Steinberg. What messages do you think they delivered, and how do you think that Beijing viewed that visit? Well, I think the the Hadley-Steinberg visit, together with the AIT chairperson, Laura Rosenberger, this is a very traditional part of the U.S. playbook sending an unofficial delegation right after the election. And, you know, I suspect the, the message was both congratulatory and, and a reaffirmation of the, you know, traditional U.S. one China policy. I think some element of it was probably just to find out now that Lai and his team have moved out of the campaign into the pre-inauguration period, you know, how will he form his team, particularly his national security team, and what, if any, direction does he plan to take towards Beijing? But I suspect these were very nascent initial conversations. And, you know, there was in Beijing, I think, some acknowledgement that this type of delegation can play a stabilizing role. I, I think, you know, behind the scenes, not publicly, China has given some acknowledgement of that point. After the election results were announced, uh, I think President Biden was... Uh, asked for a comment by reporters. It obviously wasn't a, a press conference. It wasn't planned. And and the president said one line, He uh, a line, of course, he has said many times before. Uh, he said the United States doesn't support Taiwan independence. Uh, now, obviously, it's longstanding U.S. policy. But how should we interpret the fact that at that particular moment, Biden chose to just repeat that one line, the United States doesn't support Taiwan independence. Well, I, I don't know, you know how much that was a choreographed, timed message. I mean, I think there have been some instances in the past when Biden has offered a view on different aspects of China policy in, in those impromptu settings that may not have been fully a product of 
design, but I mean, he's the president, so it's his prerogative. My guess is that, you know, going into the election, he wanted to send a reaffirmation to both sides of the traditional U.S. position not to support uh, independence. And of course, to Beijing, that would be seen as reassuring. It plays in complex ways in Taiwan politics, as you know, but I don't think that it was meant to interfere in any way in the Taiwan election. No, certainly I don't think that the United States had um, any uh, intention uh, of interfering in Taiwan's election. But that particular comment was made after the election results were announced. So um, obviously that, that wasn't his intention. But sometimes Biden just says one thing, other times he can say something else that's contradictory. I sense that recently he has been a little bit more disciplined uh, and talked mostly about our one China policy and cited just some of the components of that one China policy. I personally think it would be really helpful if at some point the president would state our one China policy in a more comprehensive way, or maybe one of the senior officials from the U.S. government even give a speech that would explain to the American people why Taiwan matters to the United States and what our one China policy is in a more clear and comprehensive way. I'm wondering if that makes sense to you and and if you can maybe offer some of your thoughts on why that hasn't happened in the Biden administration. The challenge sometimes is, you know, timing is everything. I think when Secretary Blinken gave his speech on, on China a year and change back, you know, his he did include a pretty extensive portion on the U.S. one-China policy, but it wasn't nearly as expansive, as you rightly point out, as, as say, Tom Christensen, when he was Deputy Assistant Secretary under the Bush administration, when he gave a much more extensive speech in that in that context. I think Laura Rosenberger has started to do some of this now that we have, she's a full-time AIT chairperson. But when I say timing, you know, sometimes is, is critical. In an election campaign, I think the Biden administration went to great lengths not to be seen as, as weighing in on one side or the other. And the challenge is that if you say anything different, even if it's something the U.S. has said before, if it hasn't been said by the Biden administration, it can generate unpredictable consequences, both in Taiwan, Beijing, and, and back here on the Hill. And so... You know, again, I, I personally, I, I tend to agree with you. I think that the time is right for a more comprehensive explanation of, of not just U.S.-Taiwan policy, but the unofficial relationship, which, as you and I both know, goes way beyond cross-strait issues. Taiwan is one of the U.S.'s top 10 trading partners. The You know, as a fellow democracy, there are a lot of common you know, interests and bonds that go well beyond just what Beijing um, and U.S.-China policy speaks to in, in this relationship. So I think something like that is probably warranted. But again, as you get closer to the U.S. election now, timing is once again a, a complicating factor. Yes, absolutely. Um, it, there, there's never really a good time, uh, but but I, I, I do hope that uh, people in the Biden administration 
we'll think about doing this. Um, so let me ask you about uh, Xi Jinping's statements to President Biden about Taiwan. And uh, many of these have been uh, reported by the Chinese themselves uh, when the two leaders met in Bali. The Chinese readout had quite a lot of statements uh, that they, I think the Chinese really wanted to tie President Biden to them. Uh, and so they repeated them uh, many times. And then when they met um, outside of San Francisco, um, it was reported that Xi Jinping said that reunification is inevitable uh, and that China won't wait forever. Um, we know he hasn't ruled out using force, and he apparently listed conditions under which China might use force. And then um, he also reportedly said that China doesn't have a concrete plan for taking Taiwan by force, either in 2027 or 2035. So it seemed to me that he has offered uh, both threats and assurances. What do you see as Xi Jinping's purpose in making these statements? What do you think he's trying to achieve? Well, I, I think, you know, at a certain level, what he's trying to achieve is to dispel a misimpression that I think some of China's own scholars have been perhaps, you know, conveying in reports through their system that he had set a deadline for reunification by force. And so I think in some ways, um, the Chinese reassurance is a very narrow one. And it's basically stop, stop mischaracterizing things that I have not yet said. But I, I do think, Bonnie, that, you know, we have to take at face value the comments that you mentioned beyond the 20, 27 deadline issue. I think, you know, he's, he's very serious about moving the issue in the direction of what China calls peaceful reunification. I don't think that necessarily means by, you know, amphibious invasions or blockades. But I do think that as, as Zhang Yuxia, the, the uh, uh, vice chair of the Central Military Commission, said last October, they're preparing options for different contingencies. And what they mean by that is that in the course of menu, in addition to picking off diplomatic allies, the economic pressure we've discussed, cyber, you know, intelligence type activities, you've also got a gray zone escalatory ladder in the military space that could be consequential, even though it stops well short of a blockade or a full invasion. And, and so I, I don't believe that Xi's reassurance is a blanket one by any means. I think it's very specific to this narrative that has emerged that he had somehow tied the year 2027 to his Taiwan strategy and not simply to having the PLA develop the capability by that date of, of taking the island by force. Do you think, Rick, that reunification is a legacy issue for Xi Jinping, uh, really a, a priority that he wants to achieve while he's in power? You know, Bonnie, as, as I think back to all of the conflicts that I've worked on, you know, leaders can often have ambitions, but they're not going to always get what they want. So I guess the question in my mind is, you know, given where things are, what, what is it that Xi Jinping will settle for? And it's hard to know. But, but if, if I had to guess, I think it would be something closer to moving the issue in the direction of unification on his watch. I think when he says it can't be left in its current status forever, 
he's also leaving, not boxing himself into timelines. Um, I think the TAO statement, the Taiwan Affairs Office statement that you mentioned right after Lai's victory is another example of this, where they, they took great pains to emphasize the DPP's um, relatively weaker performance compared to previous elections is suggesting that the DPP's third consecutive term does not reflect the broader trends in Taiwan society. And so, you know, while we can debate whether or not that's really true, I, my sense is that they are trying to, on the Chinese side, avoid foreclosing options prematurely. But I don't think that means they will settle for this issue standing still or moving from their perspective in the wrong direction over the medium term. So one last question. I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball. What do you see as the variables that you think will most likely influence um, Beijing's policy toward Taiwan and the development of U.S.-China-Taiwan relations after Lai Chengdu's inaugural address, the sort of period of six months through the end of uh, what could be his first term, um, uh, which would, of course, be uh, four years. Well, I, I think the you know the main variables will obviously be what Lai says in his inaugural address and the extent to which the two sides find some method to communicate with each other, you know, even if it's indirectly or or behind behind the scenes. I think the second issue will be you know does this strategic channel between Washington and Beijing play a stabilizing role or have the Chinese overestimated how much they can expect from it. I think a third issue are the misunderstandings that are kicking around in the Chinese system, and some of those are quite acute. Many in Beijing are still convinced the Americans put their thumb on the scale in favor of the DPP, and that may that may lead them to overestimate U.S. leverage. And a fourth issue, of course, is the the obvious, the U.S. election, and whether or not, as Beijing starts to hedge more against the whatever outcome that it prefers and whatever outcome that it sees is likely, whether that in some way affects the calibration of their carrot and stick strategy over the next couple of months. And, and we haven't talked about it much, Bonnie, but I should emphasize, you know, from Beijing's perspective, there is still an incentive portion of their offer. It's one that doesn't seem to be working all that well either, but the Fujian Development Initiative that they announced uh, in the fall just before they started to move on some of the other punitive issues. I, I think that was meant to signal that there is a way in which the two sides could integrate. It would largely be based around economic prosperity. But again, I think that will be the final calculation Beijing has is the U.S. election. Yes, I definitely agree. The U.S. election uh, will be important in shaping uh, China's policy. And this integrated development strategy that you mentioned is the one really new part of Beijing's strategy toward Taiwan, uh, you know, I think uh, their policy has just long been carrots and sticks. And the only question is what the balance is going to be going forward. Uh, but maybe there's a bit of a silver lining here that the Chinese haven't given up uh, or abandoned, uh, as you say, the quote unquote peaceful reunification strategy. And the fact that they blame the leader at the top of Taiwan's system, um, e even though 
it's not a good thing that they don't understand the people of Taiwan and its democracy. Nonetheless, uh, it means again that they have not abandoned uh, the the peaceful. Of course, includes coercion, but the peaceful reunification approach. Uh, so it 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 makes me feel um, maybe somewhat less pessimistic that we end up in a military conflict. Yeah, I think if we want to, you know, end on a, a good note, Bonnie, I mean, I, I, I do think the Chinese right now, because of their domestic economy, are preoccupied internally. I don't think they feel they're in a crisis, but I do think that means that I don't really buy the, the notion that they will wag the dog using an overseas conflict or a conflict in the cross-strait context. I think there is some reason to believe that this year could be one of, you know, sparks, but certainly no fire. But I think we can only see as far as the U.S. election, and then we have to reassess then. A good note to end on. We've been talking to Rick Waters, who's managing director of Eurasia Group's China practice. Thanks so much for joining us, Rick. Thank you, Bonnie. 